I'm going to start out with kind of an obvious. Some looking at it going, wow, this is really, really obvious. In times of extreme community uncertainties and difficulties throughout history, right? Not, not just with us, not in the modern era, but, but throughout history, throughout humanity, um, famine, war, disease, natural disaster, civil unrest, um, people are understandably confused. They're anxious. Um, many people, are, they get angry, right? Anxious moves quickly into anger as things that should be explainable suddenly become unexplainable, right? And, and, and control, that illusion of control we think that we had, it becomes all the more real. It is an illusion, and we can't control everything that's going on. And then isolation and loneliness, right? With, with like COVID, it just kind of blows everything out of proportion, and everything just kind of gets mountains out of molehills. And it's times like this, again, throughout history that folks tend to rather myopically, you know, short-sightedly, you know, they look at the, 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 the unrest of their generation, and they think, this is the, Christ is going to return. There's no way he can wait through this one, right? This is going to be the thing that makes Christ return, right? These are the struggles. Now, again, this isn't to deny the pain and sorrow of past generations, right? But it does explain why so many past generations, like like 2,000 years of past generations. And even my, my own grandfather, you know, I, I've, I have all of his papers. He was a Nazarene pastor back in Indiana um, in Wisconsin and areas around there. And, and, I, and I've read through his, his papers, and, and he was absolutely convinced. He died in 1967, by the way. He was absolutely convinced that Christ was going to return in the midst of all that craziness of the, the late 60s. He was like, <laughs> right? I don't know if you ever said this, but I'm sure he thought it hell, uh, earth going to hell in a handbasket. I mean, you ever heard of that phrase, right? You ever heard of that phrase? Horrible phrase, but people have been using it a lot lately, right? Because people really believe that God is kind of, or Jesus is finally going to come and make right a world well on its way. Uh, check out this picture here. I read an article, it was in a um, Nazarene publication, Pen Benefits and Pensions and Benefits, something like that. And this pastor was getting very, very tired of people coming up to him and saying, well, I guess Jesus is going to return, right? We just need to hunker down and, and because, right, humanity, the United States, wherever he was, going to hell in a handbasket. Well, he kind of did some research. He found this church in, in England, and he's got this stained glass window, and it was put up, uh, constructed in the late 1600s during a, a, the Reformation period that was really hyper into the, the, the evilness of humanity, right? The evilness of humanity, um, and, and, he, and he just, he looked at this picture and he wrote this big old long article that basically says, um, that's not what God's about, right? That this is an ugly picture of, of what God is thinking. Like he's excited to come and haul us all away in, in a handbasket. Originally it's a handcart and it becomes slowly, I don't know how it becomes a handbasket, but according to research, this is where, where it all starts. And it reflects both then and now this like, this incredibly pervasive and pessimistic incredibly pessimistic um, theological belief that God is, again, he, he's excited to punish us, right? Because we're so bad, and he's given us so many opportunities and so many chances. He's like what, what one preacher in the, in the Great Enlightenment said, that he's an, he's an angry God holding us like a spider hung by a thread over a flame, and we're just kind of dancing. No, I, I don't like that. I don't see that in Scripture. That's not the God that I read in Scripture, um, this kind of mindset, it, it, it's nothing new. Um, 
But in difficult times, it gains a lot of traction. People really get into this kind of thinking that, that when's Christ going to return? And they start looking for all the prophecies and they start taking, you know, all the Bible studies and try to figure out the code, right? My point is this, that this mindset that humanity is so evil and broken that nothing but Jesus' cataclysmic return can possibly fix anything, right? This pessimistic mindset either grows from or results in a biblically unbalanced view of sin and grace. It takes sin, the very reality of sin, but it puts it in center stage, right? Shines the spotlight on it, makes it the star of the story, when in fact the star of the story is God's grace, and that's what we're celebrating this season is God's grace. His incredible grace that he broke into history, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to change things through us, right? We're his plan, right? He didn't just set us free and then, well, I'll let them run around and knock heads a little while, and then I'll come and fix everything. No, right? We're his plan. We're to be about something, and then he's going to return. Then, then he's going to return, and again, this, this pessimistic view makes sin center stage and it pushes the good news of God's grace kind of to the sides, marginalizes it, minimizes it, kind of crowds it out. So again, instead of retreating behind church walls and kind of waiting for the end, right, keeping everybody safe, the Apostle Peter, he suggests a far better response. I kind of want to dig into his, his thoughts on COVID, 2,000 years before COVID. See, he calls us to be a witness for peace. And that's a loaded phrase. I kind of want to unpack it this morning because it, it, I'm going to kind of get to this, but it's almost cliche if we take it at face value. Again, I'm not suggesting, if you might have heard me just now, if you were listening, I'm not suggesting that we don't get into prophecy, we don't read the book of Revelation and Daniel and all that. And, um, but, I, but I just want to point out that it, be careful about being short-sighted, Right? Again, 2,000 years of people have thought, yep, this is it, this is it. And like we're going to read in our passage today, 1,000 years for the Lord is one day for us. I mean, that, that, that should tell us that don't get caught up in right what's in front of us. God's got a huge picture involved, and we're just one part of it. It's not about us. It's not about this generation. It's not about this place. It's about all of creation through all of time, all of time. Again, the year 1010 was probably just as bad or worse for some group of Christians somewhere on the earth, right? And we think this is the worst and Christ has got to return now, but a thousand years earlier, they probably thought the same thing, which kind of leads me to a, a little warning again. We get what's called, I don't know, I, this is a term I'm making up, geographical, geographically myopic, right? We think that the whole world is going to be punished for what America does. I mean, if I'm thinking, if I'm sitting in Russia thinking, oh, wait, we're the bad guys? Y'all think that we're in Revelation, we're the beast? And I'm thinking other places in the world are going, well, that kind of stinks that God's going to punish us for what America does, that, that basket case of a nation. I mean, I do, and I hear these people say, you know, God's going to punish the world because of what we do. I, I, I Just a little bit short-sighted, I think. God's got some big plans and not necessarily about us. It's about all of creation. All of creation. So Peter and his merry band of believers and the, the many merry bands of believers run around the Mediterranean world this time. They're experiencing the same kind of short-sightedness, right? The Roman Empire is just crushing down on them, and they're thinking, return, Lord, return, Lord. Like, you know, it's been, it's been a couple months now. It's not getting any better, like maybe even a year or two, and they're like, 
right? They don't got iPhones, but they're looking at something. They're looking at the sundial. You know, I don't know what they're doing, but they're, their time is passing by, and they're getting a little bit paranoid. Um, and again, like last week, Dan taught us that hope begins um, in, in darkness, right? When we realize that we're a part of our darkness, and then we repent, right, and turn around. Today's message is going to kind of have a turbulent start also, but, but I just want to say there's going to be blue skies ahead of us if we, if we push through this, all right? So just kind of hang in there. Here's the one turbulent truth I want to start with today. Living in the in-between time. Again, Dan referred to this as really, really, really easy to get caught up in the glow of the season, right? The Christmas presents and the lights and, and the feel-goodness, which is really, really, really a wonderful thing. Um, and it is. It's really, really easy to forget that while we're celebrating Christ's birth 2,000 years ago, we're also waiting for the kingdom to be consummated, to be completed, for him to return Right? So we're living in this in-between time, kind of looking back at the kingdom that came with the arrival of Christ, but looking forward to the kingdom that's going to be in all of its fullness. We're experiencing it like, like through a smoky glass right now, but one day it's going to be crystal clear right, right in front of our faces. And again, living in this in-between time, it, it, it's a time to um, prepare, really. Kind of like right, right when you saw your first car, and that time between when you saw that car and fell in love with it and when you actually owned a car. Well, maybe for some of you, you saw the car and you owned a car. <laughs> I saw a Toyota pickup and I ended up owning a two-cylinder piece of junk. But eventually, if you go look at my driveway right now, I got a Toyota pickup. I fell in love with that Toyota pickup in about third grade. I had to wait till I was, I think, close to 40 before I finally got, and that was a long waiting period, and I went and bought some stupid cars in between that time, right? But I finally got it. And again, the same thing as seeing the girl or the boy, right? And that time period between then and when you marry them, it was excruciating, right? You're just like, what do I do with myself? Like, anything I do is going to be bad. You're just, you're going nuts. You're waiting. Or, or maybe maybe that, that career, and you're investing in education and training and grunt work or, or, or you know, so many things that we, we need to prepare for. And again, the ancient Israelites, they were no different. They lived in in-between times too, right? Check this out. The first time they had where they were in Egypt, 400 years and they knew that they were going to get free, but that in-between time was brutal. 400 years, and then God sends Moses, sets them free. And a little bit later on, 70 years in Babylon, and then God sends, of all people, Cyrus the Great as their redeemer. Sets them free. Craziest thing, huh? But there was a third exile. A third exile uh, involving all of creation. Right? When Adam and Eve were evicted from the, the garden, all of humanity kind of tumbles into exile. And the biggest question that anyone, I think, in all of creation can now ask is who could possibly redeem all of creation from exile? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, every year at Christmas... Right? Every year at Christmas, Christians worldwide celebrate the fact that God heard our cry. Right? And he sent his one and only son to redeem all of creation. And then at Easter, again, Christians worldwide, we celebrate the fact that the exile created by sin and death is over. It's been defeated. Right? It, it's gone by the grace and light and res resurrection life of Christ. But here's the thing. What Christ had to accomplish in the flesh incarnate we now have been given a time period to receive our king. 
And we know that a lot of people haven't received their king. They didn't receive their king. And, and I get the impression that maybe people, they will never receive their king. But he gives us this lifetime to do that. And it's not just us. It's all of creation. That, 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 that's his goal. And if we truly love him, we buy into that goal. Right? We soldier on beside him to make sure that all of creation is redeemed. And this is where we find the church today and Peter and the early church, really in the rest of creation. We find ourselves caught in the in-between times, right? The world's true king has already come. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come and the old is gone. The new is here. Right? If you're new in Christ, if you are in Christ, your exile is over. Right? And I think you're well aware of this. You have moved from darkness and death into light and life. Your exile is over, but look around you. There are many people still in exile because the kingdom has not yet fully arrived. It arrived for you and you and you and many of us, but it hasn't arrived for a lot of people. They have yet to find peace. Their life is still turmoil and chaos. Things aren't yet the way they're supposed to be. And so what do we do in the in-between time while we wait for the car, the house, the girl, the career, our Savior? Right? What, what, do, we do? what do we do in the in-between time? In a nutshell, Peter tells the church to do the same thing that you did while you waited for the car, for the house, for the girl, for the career. You prepare you prepare, right? Maybe even like a parent preparing for the arrival of a child. And while we prepare we, and, and while we wait, we, we practice four virtues, right? We're, we're celebrating them in, in Advent. We, we practice um, joy and peace and love and hope. And by practicing these four virtues, we, we prepare ourselves. We prepare the people around. We prepare to receive our king, 2 Peter chapter 3, it started with verse 8, and we reread that just a little bit earlier. I'm going to dig into this because in, in Peter, again, Peter has such a better idea, right, than to try to figure out the code or to hunker down and wait for the return. He's like, no, don't do either one of those things. They're, they're kind of a waste of time. Here, here's what you need to be about. He says this, but do not forget one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. In the next verse, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness and said he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Right? The people were concerned that Christ was going to return like at all. Future generations were more concerned with after which catastrophe would he return. But these early Christians, like, is he going to come at all? Like they were worried that maybe God forgot the promise or, or maybe the promise wasn't trustworthy. Maybe it was a, a lie. And so they're, they're, they're literally, they're, they're wigging out quite a bit. They're just not sure what to do. But Peter reminds them and us that the slowness of God is not because he's forgotten a promise, not because it's untrustworthy, because he wants us to find him. And sometimes we're so doggone stubborn that he's like, I'm just going to have to give them some time, right? They're so stubborn, stiff-necked. We're going to come up on that one in just a minute. Stiff-necked people. And so he, just, he gets us time. He gets us time for somebody to show up and, 
and witness to us. And that, that, that time thing, sometimes we, like in the midst of COVID, we think, man, is this going to go on forever? And I, I love this passage, this day in a thousand years, and it just kind of reminds us, don't, don't, don't be short-sighted. Don't get caught up in right now. This is horrible. I understand that, but we've got a lot of living to do, my friends. We've got a lot of living to do, and a lot of other people need to find a way to live, too, and, and we're the key. We're the key. Peter continues, verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, here's the crazy thing. In a way, historians and biblical scholars and theologians, they look back on this passage and they recognize that, in fact, in a way, in, in many ways, Christ is already, he, he has returned, but he hasn't returned fully in this passage, right? He brought the kingdom of God to earth through the incarnation. And on the day that he was born, again, in many ways, the day of the Lord was actually inaugurated, right? The lame walked, the blind could suddenly see, right? Love and peace were preached everywhere. But it wasn't fully realized. It wasn't complete. It was like already or now, but not yet. The already but not yet kingdom. This is, this is the now. This is, this is the in-between time. He came once and showed us what could be. Now he's going to come back and make it be. And in the in-between time, what do we do? And then Jesus will return, verse 11, continuing verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth, and everything done in it will be laid bare. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will meet in the heat, will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new creation and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now, the imagery of fire and, and the word destruction, I mean, if, if you just kind of glance at this, this, this passage, it, it sounds like hell has arrived, right? This is the destruction that's going to happen, but that is not what's going on in this passage. This passage is actually a passage of, of incredible hope, right? It's really a passage, and this is, you'll find this throughout Scripture, this is an idea of the refiner's fire. The refiner's fire doesn't destroy. It just burns off the impurities so that the beauty can come forth. Right? And, if, and again, throughout Scripture, this is, this, is, this is the metaphor used of metals, and it's also the metaphor used of us, that God will purposely, us believers, he will refine us, and it will be a refiner's fire. And it'll, you know what, I, I can't even imagine what it's going to be, but we're going to come out pure. Right? All of creation will need to be purified and refined. It doesn't need to be destroyed. Don't look at it in that manner necessarily, but it's more... Uh, Wiping away all the junk that was bothering us and, and, and then all that remains is the beauty, right? The beauty is there. And so, Peter's advice, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Now listen, this isn't like, Lord, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. You don't want to rush him because his timing is perfect, right? But it's kind of this idea of looking forward to something, right? I don't know if you've ever looked forward to something that it was so you were excited that you, you prepared for it. Or maybe, let me, let me change the metaphor a little bit. Um, have you ever been unprepared for an incredible adventure, right? You're going to go skiing or snowboarding or hiking and you're not in physical condition and, and the trip is horrible horrible, right? You can't breathe. You're like you're coughing up a lung and your legs are screaming. Or, or you show up for a test and you weren't mentally prepared. You didn't prepare yourself. You know what it's like. Your stomach dumps, right? And you start flop sweating and it's just horrible to be unprepared. This passage is saying, look, be prepared. Be prepared. 
get yourselves ready because this kingdom is going to be amazing and you'll want to play catch up with this thing, right? You want to catch this thing up and running right away. Peter concludes, verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort, and that's huge, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And if you're at peace with him, with God, by biblical definition, you're at peace with the rest of creation. Now, it sounds so cliche, right? <laughs> peace. Okay, everybody can go home now. Just be at peace with it's so easy to read these passages, and every time you see the word peace, you think of, you know, hippies, and nothing could be further from the truth, right? We look at the word peace, and it's such a soft word, right? It's such a, a soft-edged word. Um, but for the early Christians and for the Israelites, this word's a loaded word. This load is packed, this, this, this word. Um, so let me dig just very shortly into this. Uh, the English word we have is the word peace. Um, Hebrew is shalom. Once we get into the Greek, it's irene, uh, peace, all the same idea, um, but it's not the idea that we have from 1967, right? Peace. Radically different. Biblical peace is the basic meaning of shalom, irene, or peace is, is to be complete or to be whole, right? The core idea is that life is insanely complex with a lot of moving parts, a lot of relationships, all sorts of situations going on, and, and when something is missing or when something breaks down in your system, Right? You lose your shalom. You don't have peace. You're like, ugh, anxious or angry or somewhere, somewhere in between. Um, life is no longer whole and it needs to be restored. And this is where shalom comes in. Right? Shalom is to bring, literally to bring uh, complete and restoration. Right? To bring shalom literally means to complete or to restore Right? So when, revival, when, when rival kingdoms in the Bible are done at war, they're supposed to uh, make shalom, right? They don't just stop fighting, but they try to go back and build each other back up to better than they were before. They don't just, okay, we're peacekeepers. Let's just stand between the warring parties and don't let them kill each other, right? No, they became peacemakers, peacemakers. And the state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to bring about, but they really did a horrible job of it. They were not very good at bringing shalom to anybody but themselves, right? Again, it was so much easier for them to say, well, I'll stop fighting, and even today, right, I won't harm anybody. Is that okay, God? I won't hurt anybody, right? And we think, oh, you made it through the day and you didn't hurt anybody, Jerry. That's awesome, right? And all heaven just cries because we didn't love either. Right? We, we, we never made anybody whole. We just decided, well, I won't destroy them anymore. It's so much more difficult, so much more involved, so much more relationally involved for you to say, you know what? I'm not just going to keep the peace. I'm going to make peace. I'm going to step in where angels fear to tread, and I'm going to try to fix this thing. It's going to cost me. It's going to cost me huge, but that's what my Savior did for me. He stepped in and he made me whole. And that's what we're called to do. So Isaiah, looking forward to a future king, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 9, right there, Prince of Peace. He's looking for a Prince of Shalom, right? Whose reign would bring peace with no end. The idea being that he alone could store, restore to wholeness the broken relationships between humanity and God. 
This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of what? Peace on earth. And why Jesus can say, my peace I give to you. And why the Apostle Paul can then say that Jesus himself is our Irene, our peace. Which is why Jesus can then call us to be peacemakers. You see the progression. You see what's going on here. And why Paul could then instruct the local churches to keep their unity through what? The bond of peace. Like if you've been in a board meeting, you know mountains of humility and patience and loving one another are required. If you're in any kind of boardroom of any kind of organization, the bonds of peace. Impossible without Christ. Impossible. Impossible. Notice the transition, if you're beside me. The Prince of Peace, peace on earth, and then he gives it to us, and then we have the peace and we give the peace, right? He was the whole complete human that, that I was made to be but failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that we're now called to be witnesses to the peace of the already but not yet kingdom of God. We're to be living for those who have not yet found the peace. That's our call while we wait. See, the kingdom has already arrived. It's been inaugurated, the birth of the Prince of Peace. But the kingdom won't be complete until Jesus returns. And until then, we've been called to be witnesses to the peace that we've experienced. And here's what it entails, right? I want to show you some details here. They're kind of scary, so just kind of buckle in just a little bit. I mean, the the details of this tiny little theological snapshot in in Acts chapter 7, right? We get all the details, everything that's involved in this peacemaking deal um, from the temporal to the eternal. It's all right there in just a couple of verses. Um, Stephen has been hauled before the the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of of the the Jewish people, um, because he had been preaching against the temple. He'd been preaching about Christ, and and some people bearing false witness had come forward and and told some lies about him. And so they haul him before the the Sanhedrin, and he he delivers this incredibly beautiful history of of really the reason for Jesus, right? He, He starts at the very beginning, and he arrives at Jesus. And, and then, I don't know, maybe he just got angry, right? Because at the very end, it just gets blistering, right? I mean, it's, it's just a beautiful thing, and then at the end, he just like, you know what? I just got to tell him straight. I, the truth will set them free. Here's what he says. You stiff neck people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Now, that's a weird word picture. What we're looking at is you got, you got eyes, but you don't see, right? You got ears, but you can't hear. And the proof is that you're not doing right, what you are saying that you heard, right, you're not doing it, so therefore you're not, clearly you're not hearing. The sound is coming in, but the meaning isn't coming in. So you're hearing the sound, but you're not making any sense of it. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet that your ancestors did not persecute? So like, like they're, they're, they're getting steamed, right? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous ones. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. Now, again, as I mentioned, they did not receive this well, right? Here's how they respond. When the members of Sanhedrin heard this, they were fierce and they gnashed their teeth at him. Have you ever had somebody gnash their teeth at him? Raise your hand. Have you had that? Okay, I'm going to rephrase it for the rest of us. Have anyone ever been cussed out? 
This is what gnashing your teeth is really. The Sanhedrin just went off on Stephen. I don't know exactly what they said because I don't know Hebrew cuss words, but I get the impression, right, that they really unloaded on him. Just woo hoo wee But Stephen, he's amazing. At this moment, just this incredible noise and com- just ugh, hatred. He's just like he's calm as a cucumber. That's a weird phrase. (laughs) Cool as a cucumber. I don't don't know what it is, but he's very, very calm. He's very, very calm because he's been a witness. He's been a witness to the kingdom, and now he's going to be a witness for the kingdom. He's going to be a witness to peace. Because he was a witness to peace, he's now going to be a witness for peace. Watch this. This is in Acts chapter 7, verse 55. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. First, what, Jesus, what, what Stephen sees is essentially the kingdom, the coming of the kingdom, right? We're simply not waiting for Jesus to be at the right hand of the Father. He's already there. He already has all authority, and he's given all that authority to us. We don't have to wait for anything, right? So Stephen was a witness to the reality of the kingdom of God, the Prince of Peace. And then second, even as they were stoning him, Stephen tried to be a witness for the peace that he had experienced. Watch this. He says this. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen sees the reality of the kingdom and he immediately urges others to witness the peace, to see and to give testimony. See, Stephen is following in the footsteps of his people whom God had called to be witnesses to his glory. In fact, being a witness for God is really, I think, probably one of the main themes of the entire Scripture, right? From beginning to very end. Uh, check this out. The word witness, Greek word martis. Basic meaning of the witness is to see something and to talk about it. We, we, we all know this, right? But here's the fascinating part. Again, the word witness is, can be, right, the main theme that runs throughout Scripture from very beginning to very end, especially the role of God's people, From the very first books of the Bible, we learn that God wants a group of witnesses, right? People who see and experience him and then bear witness and represent him to the rest of the world. And God typically appoints a chief witness. It's just what he does. Watch this. There's a little bit of history here. Chief witnesses in the storyline of Scripture. The pattern begins to take shape in Exodus, right? The people of Israel, they witness Yahweh as the powerful king of the nations when he rescues them from slavery. Then... When he speaks to Moses on Mount Sinai, he appoints that nation to be a priesthood of believers, a a, a nation of priests, right, that would connect the nations to Yahweh. And then Torah and Moses, right, the law, they serve as chief witnesses. And then Israel, again, proves to be such a poor witnesses that he calls up another group of witnesses, the prophets, and they witness, right, from beginning to end, witnessing witnessing what we have seen and, and, and can we explain it. And then the clearest chief witness ever, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in, Mosiah, in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. See, Jesus is the ultimate ultimate witness, the ultimate chief witness, declaring who he is and that God's kingdom is here right now through him. 
And the crowds of people, they witnessed his words, and they witnessed what he did. Many were saved, but many refused to believe his testimony, and they killed him for what? For what they believed to be bearing false witness. They felt he was lying. So they put him to death. But through his death and resurrection, his followers become the chief. We're now the chief witnesses that God has appointed. And what an incredible lineage that we have, lineage, right, of ancestry of, of chief witnesses. This is the, what God intended. They read this in Acts chapter 10. It says this, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. God needed witnesses. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. In fact, many of the early believers, they, they took this very seriously. And pretty soon that word witness became the word martyr. In fact, that, that is the root of the word witness is, is martyrs. So Stephen becomes what we would consider the first martyr. So what, might, so what might being a witness for peace look like? I want to go back to Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verses 57. It says this, at this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragging him out of the city and they began to stone him. The idea is they'd take him to a high place, throw the person. If they weren't dead at that point, toss rocks. It's not like you and your little brother throwing rocks at each other. Um, this was brutal. <laughs> this was brutal. Um, meanwhile, the witnesses, <laughs> the false witnesses, laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Right, Y'all know Saul, right? He was, the, he was the Christian killer who witnessed this Christian being killed. And I think something happened to Saul that day. Right? We hear about the Damascus Road conversion, but I, but I think the conversion started right here. Between here and the Damascus Road, Saul was in a little bit of a between time himself. But this moment, I think the crucial part of that transition in Saul's life to Paul, what happens in verses 59 and 60, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when, he had, and when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen prayers, prays a prayer of forgiveness for these people who are killing him. And I think it's normal at this point to feel sorry for Stephen. Right? What a way to go. I don't want to go that way. But then as you dig into this and, and you sit on it for a little while, you you move from feeling sorry for Stephen to feeling sorry for Saul and the rest of that crowd of false witnesses who, even in the face of Christ, believe that you still got to throw rocks at each other. But because the Holy Spirit 
We have the gift of the Holy Spirit who purifies us and sanctifies us through and through. We don't have to buy into the lie that God is waiting <laughs> to take us to hell in a handcart, right? We have a better solution. He calls us to be witnesses for peace. I want to read just this one last thing, and then we're going to share communion. This is in your devotional that some of you got a hold of, um, that we're building this whole series off of. This is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. The followers of Jesus have been called to peace. When he called them, they found their peace, for he is their peace. But now they are told that they must not only have peace, but they got to make it. And to that end, they renounce all violence and turmoil. In the case of Christ, nothing is to be gained by such methods. His kingdom is one of peace, and the mutual growing of his flock is a greeting of peace. His disciples keep the peace by choosing to endure suffering themselves rather than inflict it on others. They renounce all self-assertion and quietly suffer in the face of hatred and wrong. And in doing so, They overcome evil with good and establish the peace of God in the midst of a world of war and hate. Bow your heads, Father. It's a tall order. We, we, want, to, we want to celebrate, but we can't when we know other people can't. We can't fully celebrate when we know other people are suffering. So, Father, in this Advent season, I think you're okay if we celebrate, but I think you'd love it if we didn't forget that there are still people who don't know peace. And we're the witnesses to peace. And we have to become witnesses for peace. Father, as we prepare now, to share in communion. So our ushers come forward. We prepare our hearts to receive our King. And the only way that we're ever going to receive our King the way He wants to be received is if we understand what we're about to participate in right now. This is the power of God explained in detail. Jesus, thank you for what you did for us and what you made possible and for leaving your Holy Spirit, for sanctifying us through and through. You've given us the power to change this world, not to hide. Father, thank you. In your son's name I pray.